0: You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Two kings a thousand years apart, and both in trouble at home. That's how N.T. Wright opens a reflection on the readings for this Sunday, Two Kings, a thousand years apart, and both in trouble at home. King Herod is in trouble on account of his thorny relationship with John the Baptist, who both intrigues and troubles him. Herod has had John imprisoned, on account of the Baptist's condemnation of his marriage to his own brother's wife. And as you've just heard, Herod will then have John executed, thanks to a misstep at his own royal birthday party. John may have lost his life, but as you listen to the gospel story, it is Herod who looks to be the deadest figure in the story. And then there's King David's domestic trouble, which is just hinted at in one verse from what we heard read. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She despised him in her heart, which is meant to make the reader's heart sink. How awful to be so despised by one's own spouse. And it's happening in David's own household Had we read just a bit further, the depth of Mikkel's hostility and the desperate shape of their marriage is made abundantly clear as Mikkel confronts David. And he responds with a defensiveness that betrays just how estranged they have become trouble at home indeed. For kings to be portrayed in this way, should come as no surprise. Because there is a deep suspicion of kingship that runs through the whole of the Bible. You may recall the reading from early June in which the people came to Samuel asking that a king be anointed for Israel so that they could be just like the other nations. Uh, Samuel says, Careful what you ask for. A king will take your sons into his army, enlist your daughters as servants, tax your land, tax your crops. But they persist, and on the whole they do get exactly what they had asked for. King Saul, the first king, turned out to be a disaster. and While King David, the second king, is revered, and even called a man after God's own heart, he is far from perfect. His son Solomon, the third king, is often shown in positive light in spite of some of his own serious misjudgments. From time to time over the story of Israel, a fairly decent king will surface, but they're the exceptions So much of the time, there is trouble at home when it comes to the kings of Israel. And the scriptures are unafraid to unveil that fact, to tell it straight out. So let's step back and look a little more closely at today's story of how the Ark of the Covenant, the great wooden cabinet in which the stone tablets of the law were kept, how it's brought into Jerusalem. What is this story telling about David? Well, it's it's Walter Brueggemann's view that David's decision to bring the ark to Jerusalem is both an act of good faith and a nervy act of calculation. David is in the process of solidifying his kingdom over all the tribes of Israel with Jerusalem, the city of David, as its political center. Jerusalem had been a Jebusite stronghold, so had no history of belonging to any one of the tribes, a canny move on David's part. Still, even though he is now enthroned in Jerusalem and king over all of the tribes, There are those who remember the old order, the old tradition, how life was before the kings. And they'd begun to recognize how true Samuel's warnings had been. They had lost sons to the army. They'd seen daughters become servants. They'd felt the sting of the taxation system that fed the royal and military machines. How to bring those old-school, unsettled, skeptical ones on board? Well, if the ark is taken from its resting place under the care of Abinadab, brought into Jerusalem, that will mark Jerusalem as the spiritual center of the nation. For those still attached to the old order, that would mean that in order to draw close to the ark, which symbolized the presence and power of God, God's covenant promises to the people, in order to draw close to that symbol, they would have to come to Jerusalem. And so David sets out to move the ark. Again, moving the ark is both an act of faith and a calculated move as all the way through, the writers of these stories see both David's faith and his strategic savvy. As our reading opened, David and a large company travel to the home of Abinadab, where the ark has been resting for decades. They set out from there toward Jerusalem with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals There's one crucial bit of the story that the lectionary had us skip right over. As they make their way with this great celebration, carrying the ark, one of the men walking beside the cart on which it was being hauled reached out his hand to steady it as they went over rough ground. And he's immediately struck dead. Now, I understand the lectionary's temptation to skip over that detail, because it does seem like a pretty arbitrary act for God to strike the guy dead. But it's a moment that raises some insight about David, because after witnessing this, David says, or the text says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Walter Brueggemann sees this as something of a humbling of David, a wake-up call for David. He writes, the death has its salutary effect. David becomes freshly afraid of Yahweh, of God. When people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the community is put at risk. David may intend to use the ark for his own purposes, for religious equipment has powerful legitimating effect, Such political use, however, does not empty the old symbol of its formidable theological power. So he has to set aside his politics, his savvy, for a while while he contemplates the holiness of this object, the faith piece of himself. So the ark remains in the care of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, Note that the person to whom David has entrusted this most powerful symbol of the faith of Israel is not himself an Israelite. Yet he is, the text says, blessed in his caring for the ark. That's the signal for David to once again move to relocate the ark to Jerusalem. They start out again and they begin by making a ritual sacrifice. And then the procession really becomes a celebration With David famously, quote, dancing before the Lord with all his might, girded with a linen ephod. Two things to note here. First, the writer's clear, David is dancing before the Lord, not before the object. Secondly, he's wearing a linen ephod, which is often thought to indicate that he basically stripped down to his boxer shorts. That's the image I always had carried. But an ephod was in fact a vestment worn by the priests, which went over the shoulders and then tied at the waist. So what is David symbolizing here? Is it a claim that he has a priestly role as a king? Or is it meant as an act of, of contrition for having leaned too far toward the political Importance of taking the ark to Jerusalem, thus taking for granted its religious significance. Is he, in a sense, humbling himself? Either way, he's not dancing in his underwear. Our text ended shortly after that, as David sets out a feast for all to enjoy, young and old, rich and poor, male and female. That feast is a moment when the sheer abundance of the day comes into view. The ark is in its new home, praises have been lifted to God, and David seems in a place where his royal power and his religious devotion are finally united. Yet we need to be aware that Mickle had looked out and despised her husband on account of his leaping and dancing before the Lord. Why such a strong reaction? Well, perhaps she's remembering her father, King Saul, thinking that he would have been far too dignified to dance like that in front of the people. Or perhaps she's remembering the later days in her father's life when he began to lose control mentally and emotionally watching her husband let go of control was maybe just too painful well she confronts him it's just a few verses after our reading ended she says that david has acted shamefully uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants maids which again suggests that underwear thing but not necessarily so He has replaced his kingly garments with priestly ones. The shame coming from letting go of his proper royal dignity and dancing with abandon. And it marks a permanent breach between the two of them. There may be in this story something of a foreshadowing of the path that will lead David into his adultery with Bathsheba, a disordered household. But at the very least, we are made aware that all is not well at home. I began with N.T. Wright's comments that in these readings we see two kings a thousand years apart and both in trouble at home, to which I'd add that there is a third king standing slightly off stage. Herod found himself unsettled by John the Baptist, publicly denouncing his illicit marriage. But it would be King Jesus who would ultimately unveil the kind of kingship Herod banked on as being corrupt and hollow. King Jesus, called Son of David, would come into Jerusalem, David's city, seated on a donkey, and embodying a kingship of which even David himself couldn't have begun to dream. His authority was based not in royal striving or in military power, not in canny politicking, but in self-giving, servanthood, and sacrifice. This is what Paul will call God's foolishness in his first letter to the Corinthians, a foolishness that is wiser than human wisdom and a weakness stronger than human strength. That's Christ's kingship. That's where all the texts about kings in both Testaments ultimately point us to a place beyond the hard scrabble politics, the backroom deals, the military ventures, the strivings for position and prestige. Much as the narratives in the Old Testament revere David, their final hope is never placed in him, but rather in the one who is to come, who has come, and who will come again. In him, is our true home. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.